in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. So Paul writes, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We are in an early part of our new series in Second Corinthians, which we think may take us to the end of the career here is, um, Lord willing, we'd be able to come to the end of it by the end of 2024 or so. But it's been an exciting journey so far, and before we enter it today, let's pray together. Father, thank you that every word of Scripture brings us to the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the bread of life. Now feed us, the Lord Jesus. May our hearts be sated with him, satisfied with him, build up in him, faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Grant us grace as we preach and hear today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Typically, I believe that most modern people frown on the concept of boasting, which is sort of ironic because it's a very arrogant, proud age in which we live. If boasting really devolved down to the issue of braggadociousness or obnoxiousness or something like that, of course, we would all be right in decrying it and doing it with some vehemence. But do you know that there is such a thing, biblically speaking, as proper boasting? And the Apostle Paul is a perfect example of that. In the ESV, in the Pauline literature of all of his epistles to churches and individuals, astonishingly, 48 times the word boast or boasted or boasting or boasts is employed. And we might even say that the book of 2 Corinthians is the epistle of boasting. Because an incredible, amazing 28 times in this book, with only the 13 chapters or so, we find that word boast or its cognates. And only once is it used in a negative way, and that's in chapter 11, verse 12. Though it must be stated that in some of the other Pauline literature, it is on occasion used in a less than favorable connotation. So we will discover today that without doubt there is a proper place in the church for what we might call appropriate boldness, if I may say it that way. And because all God allowed boasting, all of it without exception, must center on and be focused on and consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the God-man. Because that is absolutely the case, we may, on this Resurrection Day, make it our living gospel goal to rejoice in Christ-likeness in the church. And with that in mind, we're going to study 2 Corinthians 1, 12-14. Hopefully everyone got an outline. It would be in your bulletin. And we start now. The title of the sermon is Proper Boasting. The doctrine, 
All proper boasting gives all the glory to God in Christ Jesus. Now this, of course, is a very key and important point to make right up front, right away. Perhaps the most famous text on that came from our call to worship today, 2 Corinthians 10.17, which says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If our religion, our Christian faith, is not consumed with the person of Jesus, then it's of no value whatsoever, has zero goodness in it. Christ alone is our entire righteousness and our justification. He's all our goodness. We have none of it ourselves. So all of our boasting is in Christ. Even all biblical knowledge is accursed if it does not find its focal point in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why Paul could legitimately boast the way he did. When does faith derive all its life? Well, when it derives it from Christ himself. And that makes credible the statement that all proper boasting gives all the glory to God in Christ Jesus. First, acknowledgement of divine grace in the church is a good thing. There's not only nothing wrong with this, but it's also positively right and good for us to do it. Of course, to do it in humility and grace and in wisdom and propriety and dignity and honor and appropriately and all of those things. But undoubtedly in doing it, we do need to be careful, wise, and most importantly, Christ-focused. No one, no one in the church may be boasted of at all who is not a lover of Jesus Christ. Anyone else, I don't care what they know, what they say, what they believe, how they act, how pompous and arrogant they are, they deserve none of this holy boasting that Paul speaks of here. Only the lovers of Christ, because through affection for him, we have love for all three members of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and his glorious eternal divinity, and the Holy Spirit. Would we not be remiss, dear saints, if we failed to recognize God's love, grace, mercy, and kindness in the church fully given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? People that do not love God never want that to happen. They seek to keep it from happening, to deprive God of glory, if you will. But those who do love the triune Godhead and the God-man Jesus Christ our Lord make sure it does happen by the grace of God. Acknowledgement of divine grace in the church is a good thing. So long as the credit goes to the right source, God. You know, if we take any acclaim to ourselves or if any way we think or believe that we had anything to do with our salvation our right standing before God, then in fact we are not atoned for and we have no part in Jesus Christ's redemption of his elect church. That is how imperative the centrality of Jesus Christ is to the true religion and all true church life. He gets all the glory, all the honor, all the praise for all the work of our atonement applied to us as we're passive recipients of this grace as we're in our completely lost, dead, rebellious state in opposition to God. This is how great the gospel is, how powerful God is in the lives of his elect churchmen. You know, in the, in the faithful church, we do a lot of celebrating, joyful celebrating. 
Well, sometimes it's done in homes like last night, yesterday, different graduates and just the fun we have together. In the church it happens. We celebrate in the sermons as we love Jesus Christ. We gather up all that manna of grace being given to us in the gospel. We celebrate in the table of the Lord where sinners come and feast on Jesus and drink his blood. We celebrate in our prayers, in our singing, our reading, our fellowship. But all of it, all of this celebration for every true Christian walking in grace and the Spirit of God centers on Christ himself, the absolute center of all things. He is our Lord, King, and Redeemer. You know, there is a false humility, dear saints, with which many religious people, even many professing Christians, are burdened. And this false humility tells, teaches them that there can be no real joy in the religious life, in the life of faith, unless or until the alleged cause for this joy comes from sources approved by the world. Once it gets the world stamp of approval, then we can take pleasure. But the true saint, the the faithful church, the regenerate soul, doesn't see it that way at all. We know that this joy comes from the only source that can really give it, and that's God who gives it to us through the gift of his glorious and beloved Son given to us sinners for our eternal salvation and adopting us into the church. So all proper boasting gives all the glory to God in Christ Jesus. Now let's do some exegesis from verses 12 through 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and study together three spheres, S-P-H-E-R-E-S, children, that's areas or realms of proper boasting. You know, boasting in Christ, though it is always connected to the Redeemer, has emanations coming forth from him that can be particularized or that we can put some more definition to. Now, in today's lesson, these all revolve around Jesus, of course, as he is displayed in the ministry, the gospel, and the church at large. And therefore, looking at these verses, let's learn together where we, where we may appropriately, with honor and grace and dignity, utilize God's three spheres of proper boasting. First, ministerial integrity spurred by suffering, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. This integrity is so important in the ministry and in the life of the church, that we're honest, that we tell the truth, that we say what's accurate and actual, that we represent God in Christ Jesus truthfully, without the fear of man, the world, the devil, the pressures of life, the peer pressure of others, any of the assaults upon us. We don't need to fear any of that. This verse 12 is really remarkable, especially when you consider what preceded it in verses 8 through 11, where we saw the angst and anguish and agony of Paul and his ministerial comrades suffering in Asia in certain ways that seemed like it was beyond the ability of life to endure it. They came almost to the end of the ropes. The life of the Christ-loving, Christ-focused, Christ-serving Christian churchman 
Be she a faithful disciple who changes the dirty diapers of the parish's littlest saints, or be he the minister who has the privilege of proclaiming the glorious Lord Jesus in his gospel to the church and the world, both of them possess in Christ and in Christ alone perfectly clean consciences and walk in this fallen world with integrity, honor, honesty, unpretentiousness, and courage, all in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to grow up in Christ and to be the person God wants us to be in Christ. All of this is done as we, listen carefully, we behold the exact and express image of God in the face of the person of Jesus Christ himself, as we are more and more conformed into Christ's character and likeness, as per 2 Corinthians 3.18. And as I mentioned, verse 12 followed verses 8 through 11, which were very difficult. Those were testing times for the apostle and his comrades as they had to go through those hardships. But despite them, and we might even say because of these hardships that they had to endure, they stayed the course for the good of the whole church, and in particular for the good of this Corinthian church to which Paul was writing in probably the 50s A.D. Is it okay to boast about these things? Well, it is, if all the acclaim and praise is traced back to the proper source, which, of course, Paul the Apostle does as a good model for us as well. Three spheres of proper boasting. Ministerial integrity spurred by suffering and ecclesiastical discipline motivated by love, verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. I think Paul is saying here that everything he's going to write in this epistle of 2 Corinthians is straight up honest, and there's no hidden meaning behind it. There's no mystery. He's not got anything under the table. He's not holding something behind his back. He's not crossing his fingers. Nothing buried away in his words. He's just being honest. On top of that, Paul is not ignoring the fact that in his first letter to the Corinthians, he had to lower the boom on them, and rightly so, for some serious errors. Paul is not being coy or sly, nor is he employing some sort of sleight of hand with this Grecian Achaean parish with which he was instrumental in its planting. But all of this does presuppose the obvious truth and reality that the Corinthian congregation had needed some serious discipline, that it had been duly administered, and that this Pauline epistle of 2 Corinthians would address some of that very dynamic. So he's, he's just letting them know that there's going to be some talk about that in this epistle. So they gather on a Sunday, they have a worship service like we're having now. Afterward, one of the literate officers stands up and they have a family time. They read this book of 2 Corinthians, this letter. All of church life is important. The glories as well as the agonies. 
This includes everything from the ecstasy of experienced forgiveness of sins in Jesus' blood to the need for apostolic and fatherly chastisement from time to time. Three spheres of proper boasting, ministerial integrity spurred by suffering, ecclesiastical discipline motivated by love, and finally, glorified sanctification on the last day, verse 14. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we boast of you. Now I take this verse 14, which is obviously a connected extension of verse 13, as Paul's way of stating that the Corinthian Christians would, in God's good time, fully comprehend all that the apostle had sought to teach them and correct them in in his earlier epistle, and that in so doing they would all rejoice together even on the great judgment day. Isn't that wonderful that God loves his church so much that he always takes care of us, even if that includes, as in their case, some need for discipline. Now, only this could explain Paul's confidence that, quoting him, the Corinthian church would, quote, boast of us as we will boast of you. That might not have been in his mind when he wrote parts of 1 Corinthians. On that day, the great judgment day, all of us who are in Christ will boast of each other as we rejoice in the grace God conveyed to and through us through Christ alone as we, in Christ, built each other up in our most holy faith in Jesus. Sanctification, which starts here, is is culminated in glorification, which is embodied in the person of the God-man Jesus Christ, And it, glorification, also starts here as we are past and present tense glorified in the Messiah as per Romans 8.30 upon the moment of our supernatural and miraculous regenerations. The termination of our bodily subjective glorification is when we receive the glorified these bodies again on that, the great judgment day, as per this verse 14. Do you look forward to that day? You know, we should. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16.22 at the end of it. Our Lord come. So here at Redeemer, we like to do the doctrine of the text and the exegesis and then more applications. So let's do that now and comprehend why it is essential for the church to recognize growth in grace in Jesus. Would it not be odd if a parent never took notice of his or her child's natural or physical growth? Wouldn't it be strange if in this season we didn't celebrate milestones like graduations, things like that? Is it not a good and healthy thing for human beings to develop into the people God created them to be? And among the elect church in Christ to be everything a human being could ever be. Supremely more so is this true of you, the souls who by God's sheer miraculous and sovereign grace are in Christ today as his faithful church. Biblical boasting really is more simply observing and celebrating the great work God is doing in his church through the blessed Holy Spirit, the ministry of the gospel of the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And therefore, with that in mind, let us more sufficiently understand why it is essential for the church to recognize growth and grace in Jesus. First, because it inspires us all to want to behold God's image in Christ more fully. 
Ironically and interestingly, this is really the major reason for our taking note of good things happening in God's church people, all of whom are in Christ. The difference between a true and living Christianity and all subordinate and inferior lesser forms of it is this. The fact that the regenerated redeemed saints behold God in the face of Jesus Christ through the scriptural mirror of the gospel message, especially as it is preached from faithful churches of true congregants. Anyone who seeks to know God, aside from beholding God in the face of his Son, Christ, will never know God. This alone is God's prescribed exclusive way of anyone knowing God. He must be known in the face of Christ. And we see that face through the mirror of the gospel, which is the doctrine of salvation given to us in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this doctrine also, on the converse, includes those people who seek to know their Bibles but refuse to see Jesus Christ in them. They don't know God. Remember those people Jesus dealt with in the Gospel of John? You search the scriptures. They knew it well, but they didn't find anything there because they did not see Jesus in it. And that only leads to more condemnation. Bible knowledge is a good thing, but no good at all if it doesn't lead us to Jesus. It only leads to more wrath and death and and arrogance and pride. Not the sort of healthy boasting we're talking about here, but of an arrogant idolatry, a self-will, if you will. God will only be known in his Son. And the Holy Scriptures exist to reveal to us the truth, the history, and the doctrines of the Holy Gospel. So that in it, the Gospel message, we will see, behold, embrace, and love Jesus Christ our Lord. And through him, have the full fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the faithful, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church in all times, the church militant on earth, the church triumphant in heaven. Now we will talk about just what this knowledge of Jesus does for us and to us, why it is essential for the church to recognize growth and grace in Jesus. Because it inspires us all to want to behold God's image in Christ more fully. And in so doing, to be conformed more and more into his likeness. So there's the answer to the why, why it's essential. Because Christ's likeness is the answer. Here's the whole issue of life. You'll face it this week. The world, the fallen world, ever since the fall. The devil and fallen sinners... Their entire project is to deface the image of God in creation. To rub it out, to erase it, to get rid of it, to confuse it, to mar it, to blur it. Deface the image of God at every turn. And that's always been true. It's certainly behind all of the modern perversions of our age. The mask is on it, but that's what it's about. The whole plan is to deface the image of God in his world. But God our Father is diametrically opposed to that, and he's powerful. 
He's doing the exact opposite. He's establishing, forming, enhancing, and perfecting the image of God in His church, in His people, through our seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ, which we behold in the gospel message. That's what God is doing for the girls, the boys, the women, and the men who constitute his holy and elect church. God is making us more like his natural son, Jesus. He's re-establishing, reasserting, reapplying, showing the world again the image of God, who he is. What will this look like and feel like in terms of our own experience? Well, mostly this answer is love. We will find ourselves loving God more readily and more fully. And in love for God, we'll love each other in the church even more. And through the love of the church, be able to extend that love to others in the world as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love is willing to endure all things, bear all things, etc. That's what love can do because we're in Christ. Where does faith come in? Well, faith is when we behold the face of Christ in the gospel of God's free mercy and grace. To what does faith and love lead? To willing and happy filial compliance, a desire to please our God. We love him and we hate sin. Our entire lives change. We're new creatures. We're born again into a new life. We love God in Jesus Christ, and we hate our sin. It's a beautiful thing, this doctrine of the gospel, the grace of God. No pastor needs to worry that he preaches too much grace. The grace will lead people into antinomianism. No, not for a second. No. No, the true lovers of God, they don't need to be worried about. They will love him in Christ Jesus and hate sin. To what does faith and love lead? Well, that obedience to our beloved Heavenly Father in the power of the blessed Holy Spirit. In heaven, what will the end of all this be? Well, partly, holy boasting in the Lord. The Lord Jesus, who has done everything for us, His church, has bought us with His blood, has sealed us in it, has atoned for us, has justified us, has given us his righteousness, has imputed it to us. We are the children of God. He has done it, and we will boast of him. And we may do it now. Beloved, proper boasting is good and appropriate, so long as it's in Christ. So let us thank God for proper boasting. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for proper boasting. That Paul talks about it a lot in this book and in his writings. And And we're thankful that we can do it in Christ Jesus alone. He is our only boast. We bless you for our lovely Savior. Praise you and thank you for him. Consecrate all these dear saints to you and any others. Father, hearing these gospel words, may they be drawn to you irresistibly by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you apply Jesus to them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.